You're listening to the Southwide Baptist Church Podcast with Pastor Jeremy Lewis. At Southwide Baptist Church, our mission is to boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and thereby lead people to worship God authentically, connect in biblical community, grow in Christian maturity, and multiply disciples and churches both locally and globally. For more information about our church, please visit www.southwidebaptist.com. Now let's join Pastor Jeremy for today's message. Well, if you have a copy of God's Word, let me invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. As we continue to work our way through the book of Acts, um, neglected to mention just a few moments ago uh, that we do want to give you the link give.southwidebaptist.com uh, for you to continue to use. And there's offering plate at the back door as well, uh, but that can be used uh, at any time to be able to give toward various needs as they arise within the body of Christ and to be faithful each week in our giving. So we look at this uh, book, and we're reminded of two things over and over again. And at the risk of sounding repetitious uh, or like a broken record, uh, those two things are the great resistance to the gospel in the culture and the great resilience of the gospel and the church and its mission. The more we see the gospel preached, the more the world rises up against it, and yet For 2,000 years, the church and the gospel message has remained resilient, and it is the very reason why today we have this gospel message to be heard and to be believed. The reason why we have come to faith in Christ is because God has continued to sustain His mission and His church to proclaim that mission uh, for over 2,000 years. And we stand now in the same grace that the church stood in, in Acts chapter 19. And the same phrase continues to be repeated in various ways. The Word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly. This will be the mantra of the church in eternity. We will sing of the glory of the Lamb of God, Jesus the Christ, and the story written will be that the church multiplied disciples and obeyed the mission of Christ. And I'm thankful for that resilience this morning. So we come to yet another place. We began Ephesus last week and we asked the question about Ephesus. What was the resistance there? And I said to you last week that there were two points of resistance in the two years that Paul, essentially the two years second time around, that Paul served the church at Ephesus and the city of Ephesus bringing the gospel to them. Two points of resistance. Last week we saw this this amazing story about how those who were caught up in witchcraft burned all of their books and, and left witchcraft and went and followed Jesus. An amazing story. Today we come to the second uh, act of resistance within this city and we'll read about it in Acts chapter 19. So if you found your place, let me invite you to stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word. So we begin in verse 21 together. The Bible says, now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that the gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess of Artemis may be counted as nothing. 
and that she may be deposed from her magnificence. She whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion. And they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. When Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion. And most of them did not know what they came, why they came together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we are in, the, in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause to, since there is no cause that we can justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he d- dismissed the assembly. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray this morning that you would open our hearts as we look to your word for instruction and to hear your voice. God, we pray that your spirit would be our teacher. God, that where there are blinders, where there are Uh, Things in our heart that would separate us from you, God, we pray that you would remove those things. Help us to see clearly, to be convicted, uh, God, of sin and convicted of righteousness, that we might live and obey your word. I pray if there's someone here this morning who's never trusted in Jesus, that they would see their need for Christ and that today they would be saved. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So I have a question, and that question is this. What do you do as a Christian? This is a perplexing question. This is something I think that's on all of our hearts. What do you do as a Christian when you're living in the world, and in that world is nothing but total cultural chaos? How do you you even live in that kind of a world? How do you continue to be a Christian? What is it that a Christian should do? How do you respond? How do you lead your family? How do you serve in your workplace? How do you serve your community? What do we do in the world around us whenever everything is in total chaos? I think that we can all agree this morning that the world that we live in is now in complete and total chaos. Uh, you, you don't even have to do very much. You could have simply uh, watched the, the presidential debate, debate this past week and realized that we live in a world of total chaos. It's just, it's insane what our world is coming to. So how do you, how do you live? What's the Christian's response? Well, we find Paul at Ephesus. And let me just remind you of the scene here because I think that it's helpful as we ask that question. Chapter 19, verse 8, where we were last uh, week, says that Paul entered the synagogue for three months and spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. So he's reasoning and persuading, he's preaching the gospel. Verse 9 says that when some became stubborn and continued in, in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation... He withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. So now he's in the church, having left the synagogue, he's with the the believers within the town of Ephesus. 
And verse 10 says that this continued for two years. So we get kind of a a time frame on how long Paul is there in Ephesus. So that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. It's kind of an introduction to the chapter. And what happens is now the rest of the chapter drills down into the details of what that looked like over the course of two years. So you have two major resistances that we're told about. We're not told about the entire two years, but just simply part of it. And so the first one we looked at last week, remember the sons of Sceva, who tried to cast out the demon. They tried to do an exorcism. And they said in the name of Jesus that Paul's preaching, not our Jesus, but Paul's Jesus, you come out. And of course, the fools, uh, are, they're made a fool out of by these demons. And then all of the people around sea and those who are witches in the town, they burn all their books, they come to faith in Jesus, and there's this miraculous scene of the lost coming to faith in Christ. And I just love that story because it reminds us that anyone can come to faith in Christ. Jesus can change anyone's life. Amen? Isn't that good news? And then, just when we think that the story of resistance is over... It happens yet again, almost two years later. Verse 21 says that after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem. And we're going to come back to that in a couple of weeks. You begin to see how that is really important, where Paul is desiring to go to Jerusalem and then Rome. That comes Becomes really important later. It's a transition point in this where there is this focus on getting the gospel to Rome. But verse 22 says that having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed and he uses this new time marker for a while. How long is that while? Well, if you read the the entire chapter, you'll see that we're not... It's not totally defined, but at least it's pretty clear that it's coming close to the end of this two years. So Paul's been there a while. He's been making disciples. He's seen the church get really established and rooted and built up. Verse 23 says that about that time, so around this time, the same time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. In layman's terms... There was a big to-do in Ephesus about what was happening. This wasn't something that just flew under the radar anymore. It was building this kind of pressure cooker. Anybody ever used a pressure cooker or maybe a kettle on the stove? We don't do that anymore. But when it gets to the end and the pressure's really built up, there's this kind of shaking and steaming. We've got one of those Instapots. Anybody got one of those? Sounds like the things that come off off of the counter, right? That's what's been happening in Ephesus, this tension building. And it says that it was over the way. Well, what in the world is that? Verse 20, or chapter 20 and verse 1 says that after the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed to, departed for Macedonia. So this is just before Paul leaves. This big disturbance over the way. So the end of Paul's two year journey Uh, Through Ephesus, Christianity has become known. The movement is powerful. It tends to attract attention at this point. And it's attracted so much attention that they're even calling it the way. Almost like we would call it Christianity. It seems to have been peculiar to Ephesus. We don't see that phrase used really anywhere else in Scripture. Mainly here, Ephesus, at the church there in the city. We first saw it in chapter 18. You remember when Priscilla and Aquila heard that Apollos was preaching? And he didn't know everything there was to know about Christianity. He was a little confused about some things. So they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. It's a description of the gospel. Then, of course, we just read in chapter 19 and verse 9 that there were some being stubborn and in unbelief speaking evil of the way. Speaking evil of the gospel. Maybe this term came from the teaching of Jesus. You remember in John chapter 14, when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That no man comes to the Father apart from Him. I think that they recognized that Jesus was in fact the way. 
But it was unique in Ephesus because in Ephesus, remember, it was the center of religion of the day. There were all kinds of different ways that were being proclaimed. Not only witchcraft, but hundreds of other gods of the culture of the world. All of these Greek gods, not to mention the overt immorality in the town. Between Corinth and Ephesus, you could live any way you want and find any religion you want to support your lifestyle. This was the culture of the day. So when you come into Ephesus and you begin to preach the gospel, you make enemies of the culture. Because any time you preach a faithful, biblical gospel, it, it draws an exclusion, a divide between that and everything else. Christianity can't just be a way, it must be the way. And so the worldview in Ephesus was much like modern America. In the same way Jesus was the only way in Ephesus, Jesus is the only way in America. There is not room to add Jesus to the other list of gods or the list of practices that we do here in our country. Oh, you can if if you desire to find some religion that supports your particular lifestyle, you can certainly find that. But it will be a false gospel. You see, the only gospel is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he is preached, it is Jesus and Jesus alone. And so when you maintain that Jesus Christ is the way, the necessary conclusion is that all other ways are false. And that means that they cannot be allowed to coexist. There's only one true way. Truth is not relative. It is absolute. And God has already defined it. And what happens is when you proclaim the absolute claims of the Bible, the absolute claims of Christianity, it inevitably leads to conflict with the culture. And here the conflict begins with one particular man, a man by the name of Demetrius. It says in verse 23 that about that time there arose no little disturbance. I love Luke. Luke is so politically correct in the way that he says things. No little disturbance. You almost need to say it in an English accent for it to sound right. He's just so proper when he's... In other words, there was a huge fight. (laughs) Let's just be real. There was a huge fight that happened concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business. There it is again. In other words, there's a lot of cash being exchanged with the, with the craftsmen because of the silver shrines of Artemis. Why? Because Demetrius was a silversmith, and what's happening is he's making all of these silver shrines, and he's selling them. <laughs> Artemis is a cash cow for Demetrius. He's, he's making all kinds of money over this thing. And when Paul comes in, Paul starts preaching Jesus. All of a sudden, people start turning from Artemis to Jesus. And Demetrius stops, starts losing money. Now, this is an incredible picture and so like uh, the, the culture in which we live. Because in Ephesus, it was a center of worship, but not just a center of worship. By the way, uh, Artemis was the goddess of nature. She was said to have preserved the vitality of all living things. And Ephesus was the hub of the world religion. There was this great temple, but it wasn't the only place. There were at least 33 other major temples in other places throughout the Roman Empire where Demetrius was worshipped. Or rather, where Artemis was worshipped. Demetrius says here, she and whom all Asia and the world worship. And this, uh, this temple was an amazing thing. 345 feet long. 165 feet wide. Or or rather, Artemis was on a platform that was 240 by by 420 feet. This was a massive building. And not only that, all of these people bring all of these offerings. So it's a a place where all of this money is exchanging. And it's, it's adorned beautifully with gold leaf and all of these different colors. This is this is not just a picture of worship. This is a, a, a picture of incredible economic prosperity in a town called Ephesus. People would flock from all over the place to see this major temple. And Demetrius just happens to be profiting from it. All of these different things that are happening, Demetrius is making money. You know, it's so interesting. The temple even became a place where loans were given out. 
It was such a moneymaker. The issue for Demetrius is not the issue of worship, at least of this false god. The issue for Demetrius is that he's getting money taken away from him. The real God in the heart of Demetrius was his money. So when Paul came preaching Christ as the way, it didn't just threaten his worship, it threatened his livelihood. The gospel is always a threat to those who are in rebellion against God. The claims of Christianity are always exclusive, so that no other gods can remain, not Artemis and not even our own money. So he was making all kinds of money off of this business called religion. Sounds a lot like America, doesn't it? In many ways. So notice what happens in verse 28. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion and they rushed together into the theater. There's a riot dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus. Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. The city goes into total chaos. And if you pay attention, the story of Acts, the resistance to the gospel, seems to be growing and growing and growing and growing. Even through all of these resistances, what, Paul, what, what Luke is doing is he's building this pressure cooker until you get to Ephesians and the story, or, or you, until you get to Ephesus and the story looks a little bit different. It doesn't seem here that the gospel prevails. It seems that the crowd prevails. Verse 32. Now some cried out one thing, some another. Listen to this phrase. For the assembly was in confusion and most of them did not know why they had come together. The whole city was in an uproar and they didn't even remember why they were in an uproar. Half of them are just clueless. Sounds like the riots in our own nation. People gathering together to fight for things that they don't even have a clue about. Even Alexander, who was a Jew, was put forward to make a defense and and he was shut down. And in that moment, it lost all control. For two hours, this chant, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Kind of like after Alabama wins the national championship. It's just this, just this, you know, right? It's just this parade of people. Amen? Yeah, roll tight over here. It's just this parade of people. But, but cheering for this false god. Can you imagine? In America, we would be outraged. And this is the sense that I get about the culture that we live in. So we look at Ephesus, we look at America. Right now, America is in the same way, full of confusion. People don't even know why they're fighting anymore, and yet the fight continues to grow, doesn't it? The world around us doesn't seem to have any answer or any real definition of what truth really is, and they're all rushing together the same moment. Riots, it's happening here. Political arguments, fights, it's happening here. Morality at an all-time low, it's happening here. Pandemics, our response and our argument over them, it's happening here. Sexual brokenness, just like in Ephesus, happening here. Families destroyed, everyone's rushing in to join this cultural bandwagon. We're legislating it. We're making it politically correct. And we, if we're honest, we live in a country where there is deep and pervasive spiritual confusion. And there's no handle on it. There's absolutely no handle on it. And most people are shouting and screaming about things they don't have a clue about. Can we be honest? It's the same picture. And I think we all feel it as Christians. I think we really see it. In talking about this resistance and resilience, there just seems to be like this next level where it's like being in a car, right? Where it's spinning out of control and you're trying to find just some place to grab hold of to gain control. And yet, no matter how hard you try, it just spins more and more out of control until it's in a complete roll. That's our culture. Sometimes other things in our culture feel this way, don't they? Marriage can feel that way. Constant argument, 
constant fight. No way to fix it. Spiraling out of control and just simply nowhere to grab hold of. Parents, we can feel like that, can't we? With our kids. Spiraling out of control. Our jobs. They can feel that way. You just can't win for losing. Anybody ever felt like you just can't win for losing? Anybody? So the question is, what do you do as a Christian in the middle of a culture where it is total chaos? Such an important question for us. Because I think all of us are making this decision every day. And we're frustrated if we're honest. We're outraged. We're provoked. Some of us are confused. And I think if we were ultimately honest, many of us would have to admit that we're fearful. None of us wants to even live the next 30 days. We want to just go ahead and fast forward the tape and get it over with. And that was Paul. Verse 30. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd. What does Paul do? He just wants to take the bull by the horns and do something about it. And this is what we all want to do. I was driving down 90 this week and I saw, I mean, only into Funiac Springs. I saw this, this, this tractor with a flatbed trailer. How many of you have seen this? Tractor with a flatbed trailer on the back of it, just plastered with Trump signs all over the place. And flags. I mean, just this gaudy looking thing. We, that's what we want to do with our lives, right? We want to parade our opinion and our hope and our priorities and everything else down the road so that everybody else buys in. I think about all of the yard signs that are around. We're filling our yards with these signs. Not that it's necessarily bad to be on a campaign or anything else, but this past week, Friday night, we were down at the South End for dinner and there was a whole row of pickets, picket signs and one of them was Biden, another one was Trump. By the time we'd finished dinner and come back around the corner, the Biden sign had disappeared and so had the Trump sign. Somebody had come by because we just can't. We want to just blast everything. I've seen this from Christians. We want to just run into the riot and... And, and, and one of the ways that we do that is running into social media and blasting all of our thoughts like a trumpet. We, we live in such a connected world that we just can speak out on everything. And that was Paul. I want to go into the crowd. I want to set them straight. Jesus is the way. It's not Artemis. It's Jesus. You don't preach Artemis. Preach Jesus. He's the truth. And what happens? Verse 30 says the disciples won't let him go in. Not only that, but even some of the Asiarchs, the people who were natives to the area, they pleaded with him, friends of Paul, they pleaded with him, don't go into the theater. It will not turn out good for you. And then we know from chapter 20 and verse 1 what happened. Paul waited until after the uproar had ceased to act. He didn't speak out in the middle of it. Now, Paul was pretty stubborn. I think he's probably the whole time going, hold me back, y'all. Hold me back. i got to get in there. But at the end of the day, Paul stayed back. And it drives me back to this question again. What do you do as a Christian in the middle of total cultural chaos? I think that we can confidently discern from this passage the truth that we should take away, and that is this. There are times when gospel effectiveness will be measured less by loud shouts and more by quiet faithfulness. Let me say that to you again. And you all need to hear my heart on this. There are times... When gospel effectiveness will be measured less by loud shouts and more by quiet faithfulness. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand me this morning. There are times when we must not remain silent. Amen? There are times when, like Peter and John, we must stand and speak boldly. We can't be silent because God has called us to speak. There must be times like Paul on Mars Hill where we stand up even before the governing bodies and we proclaim the good news of Christ 
and the fact that we will not budge off of the truth. We must do that. We often hear the quote, the only thing necessary for tri- for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. Have you ever heard that before? I would say in some sense that is true, but we've got to be careful. Because on the authority of God's word, based on this passage, there are times and perhaps many times when the call to boldness is actually is actually evidence of our stubbornness our rashness and our impatience, not Holy Spirit-filled power, if we're honest. There are times that the church, in speaking out, is doing more harm than we are doing good. And there are times when the call to the church is to remain silent and faithful even among the chaos. The line here of when to speak and when to be silent is particularly difficult, wouldn't you say? To know when the difference is. When should we speak and when should we be silent? Ecclesiastes calls us to both of those seasons of life. There are times when we must speak our mind. And especially in this day and age when it's so easy, right? I mean, all you have to do is pull out your phone or your computer or your tablet or whatever it is, and you can go out to Facebook and you can let the whole world know what you think about a particular issue. Seems like news travels faster than we can even imagine right now. Just pull out your phone, type away, and let everyone know. Or we see these controversial posts that we think, wow, that's an important thing, and we share it and it becomes this firestorm of comments, and then we're in the middle of a debate on Facebook before we ever intended to be. And I'm not suggesting that those things never have their place. I feel this personally as a pastor, and you need to know that. In this season of life, the pressure to speak on everything under the sun, because there's things that you're facing every day, issues that need to be spoken to and need truth. But Christian, listen carefully. To be bold in your stand for Jesus does not always mean that you must be the loudest voice in the crowd. And it does not even always mean that your voice has to be heard. Sometimes it simply means quiet faithfulness to God and His Word. Until chapter 20 and verse 1 when the uproar has ceased. I heard another pastor this week say when he was speaking to his people over the last few weeks since we have grown closer to this 30-day mark to the election. One of the statements that he has made to his people over and over is, don't lose your Christian witness. In 30 days, the election is going to be over. And then you will be giving a voice to the gospel again. And have you at that point made such a mockery of your own voice that you can no longer speak for Christ? I saw a sign this week. The sign read Jesus 2020. I posted it on Facebook. I thought that it was a helpful thing to share. I didn't know the story behind the sign. It started in July when several women of Sampy Memorial Baptist Church in Raymer, Alabama a town that's about 20 miles south of Montgomery, got together. They were talking about ideas of how they could help people feel included during the coronavirus pandemic and being distanced from church and all those other things. And so they came up with a creative idea. Martha Sykes, who is an elementary school teacher, suggested yard signs, encouraging people to take a stand for Jesus. We just decided we would start a a campaign for Jesus, she said, so people could see it and be a part of it. Joyce Hubbard, who works at a utilities manager in Raymer, uh, Hubbard hit upon the idea of making it look like an election, election sign that read Jesus 2020. She said, we don't see Jesus' name out there. We're going to put him out there. He's the one that doesn't lie to you, who keeps his promise. Unlike politicians, Jesus can be trusted at all times, she said. He's the leader Uh, He's leader in their lives. He's not political, not denominational. We're not trying to swing anyone's vote. People have speculated about ulterior motives, the writer said. Uh, Ulterior motives attempting to affect the race between Donald Trump and Biden. We're trying to keep politics out of it, she said. Our focus is on Jesus. There are a lot of things in the world that are disheartening. We know that Jesus is the answer. He can solve everything. We're totally focusing on Him. It's uplifting. 
It's giving people something to focus on besides politics. Now, here's the clincher. The church has given away more than 7,000 signs. And, not only that, but a local printing company, Wells Printing, set up the Jesus 2020 website and takes direct orders. Only $6 each. Basically, the cost of materials. And they have distributed over 30,000 yard signs. That all started from quiet faithfulness. Just a group of women gathering, maybe like our ladies gather on Tuesday mornings, praying together and saying, what can we do to be faithful to the kingdom? Well, I want to flesh this out quickly this morning because we don't have much time. But if you were to look at chapter 20, you might go, you might be tempted to go, yeah, but there was no victory there for the gospel. Like, the rioters prevailed. Not the case. Go over to chapter 20 with me this morning. I want you to see real quickly, and I mean quickly, five things that we should see in the rearview mirror as we look at Ephesus. Five ways that you can, you and I can be faithful. Can be quietly faithful instead of blasting our trumpet. Even though it may be called for sometimes. But how can we be faithful all the time? What happens is, Paul leaves Ephesus, and a few months later, he is sailing past Ephesus, and I don't, I don't know why he called the Ephesian elders ultimately. I would imagine because he saw the shores of Ephesus and was reminded he didn't stop there. But he went on to Miletus and he called all the Ephesian elders to himself. And he gave them this, what, I, what has become so powerful and so treasured in my heart when it comes to pastoral Leadership and ministry. This passage where he instructs these elders and he says some incredible things to them. This is what he was doing during his stay and what he calls them to continue to do. While the riots happening, while all the resistance is happening, this is what I'm calling you to, Ephesian elders. And by extension, what the church of Jesus Christ should be doing amidst chaos. So read it with me. Verse 17 says, Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they'd come to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived. Important. How I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I lived. So how do you measure your life? By quiet faithfulness, number one, live in humble obedience to God's Word. Just live in humble obedience to God's Word. Serving the Lord with all humility. Sometimes we spend so much time trying to get everybody else's life right that we forget that we're trying to get ours right at the same time. It's hard, isn't it? Remember what Jesus said about the log and the speck? You know, sometimes we've just got to concentrate on living the right life. Living a life according to God's Word. And I don't know about you, but as a Christian, I find that hard enough. I'm not saying we don't get into other people's lives and hold them accountable and call them to an account of the Scripture. But what I'm saying is, it's hard enough. It's hard enough to keep my own life straight without worrying about someone else's life. So focus on just simply humbly obeying God's Word. And actually what ends up happening is it becomes an example You yourselves know how I lived. You saw it. The world is constantly looking at the church today and crying hypocrite. But what if the world had nothing to cry hypocrite about? Just be faithful. Just be obedient to God's Word. And that keeps us quietly faithful among chaos because we don't cross the lines that God has established in His Word. I don't know when to speak 
if I'm just looking to my own knowledge. I don't know when to be silent if I'm just looking to my own knowledge. But when I'm looking to the Word, and I want to be faithful to the Word and obedient to the Word, then God will lead me by His Spirit through the truth of His Word when I'm to speak and when I'm to be silent. Verse 20. So live in humble obedience to God's word. Verse 20 says, how did I not shrink or how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. What is he teaching them? He's teaching them the word. They're gathered together. In houses and in public, so the setting, no doubt, where they are gathered together there in the hall of Tyrannus, gathered together, proclaiming the word, sitting under the preaching of the word. This is clearly an expression of the gathered church. So secondly, gather in biblical community with God's people. Don't neglect the gathering together of yourselves as is the manner of some. That's the call. In a world of chaos, perhaps this is one of the most normal places you will ever be. By God's grace. By God's grace. And sadly, it's not always the case. I just, let's be honest. The church is sometimes a messed up place, but that's because we're messed up people. And by God's grace, He's changing us and shaping us. But all of us share a common faith and a common Lord. And as we gather together, this is a place that should be sustaining in a world of chaos. Gather in biblical community with God's people. Notice it's not just a social club, but it's the Bible at its core. And we are God's people. Keeps us faithful. Verse 21. Testifying both to Jews and to the Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what Paul was doing. He wasn't just preaching the word and teaching the word among God's people. He was testifying to lost people. No matter their background, no matter their culture, no matter their ethnicity, he was proclaiming the gospel to them. That is repentance toward God and of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the gospel. And so we must, number three, proclaim In simple clarity, God's gospel. Proclaim in simple clarity, God's gospel. The world needs to hear that Jesus came to save us from our sin. And that anyone who would repent of their sins and put their faith and trust in Jesus will be saved. The world needs to hear that. It's not complicated. It's not complex. I need Jesus. You need Jesus. And anyone who would turn to faith in Christ can be saved today. That means to surrender your life. It's not easy to do. It's not something that comes by nature. It's something that comes by new birth as we're trusting in Jesus by faith. We're changed. As we said last week, God can change any heart. So we must proclaim in simple clarity God's gospel. That's how we're faithful. Doesn't necessarily mean it's always a sermon, but it's at least a conversation with your neighbor, with your coworker, with a family member, one that you have not yet had because you've been too silent in that manner. Quietly faithful to have conversations with real people about what Jesus has done in your life. Verse 22 And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem. Paul says he's constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen there. We know as you read on that he was locked up in chains as a result. He doesn't know except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. He knows that it's coming in some sense. Details he's foggy on. But verse 24 says, I do not account my life of any value nor is precious to myself. In other words, it doesn't matter. Why? If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. In other words, to complete my mission. To do what God has called me to do. So number four, sacrifice personal gain for God's mission. Sacrifice personal gain for God's mission. You might argue that Paul going back into that theater would have been sacrificing his life. Maybe. 
But all of us make, must make personal sacrifices in order to engage in the mission of God. That varies differing levels. You may not be called to a foreign country where Christianity is illegal to give your life for sharing the gospel. That may not be your life. But every one of us puts our own personal comforts and our own desires aside because we've learned to desire Christ and Christ alone. And if He calls us to do something, we do it no matter the cost to our own lives. Sacrifice personal gain for God's mission. And there's one more. Verse 25. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I've gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. It's declaring to the church. And here's what he says concerning the whole counsel of God. Verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. He goes on talking about fierce wolves, which is a picture of false teachers speaking twisted things, drawing people away from the truth and calls them to be alert. Remembering that he for three years did not cease day or, day or night to admonish everyone with tears. The call to guard sound doctrine. So number five, guard doctrinal purity in God's church. You can't believe a politician necessarily. You can't even believe your own feelings necessarily. But when your heart is rooted and grounded in the truth God's Word never fails. Amen? We can trust God's Word. And so we must guard the doctrinal integrity of the church. And it keeps us faithful. It keeps us faithful. Well, at the end of the passage, the end of this particular part of the passage, verse 32, he says, Now I commend you to God and to the Word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. And then he says a few words in terms of his own personal care financially. And then verse 36. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that he would not see that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. And that's the end of the story in Ephesus. See, gospel effectiveness in the church, the gospel effectiveness of the church and the community is often found in the quiet faithfulness of God's people. That is, resilience is not always the loudest voice in the room. But quiet effect or quiet faithfulness to the to the scripture is always effective. And this is the message the church needs to hear. There are times when we must be measured less by how loud we shout and more by how quietly we obey. Would you bow your heads all across the room? I don't know about you, but that's. Both reassuring and disconcerting for me. Because I don't often know when those times are. I don't know how to tell the difference. And so I need God. Especially in this time of social media and political turmoil. Opportunity to speak at every moment. We're living in days right now when the church has got to learn how to be quietly faithful amidst chaos. And so there's a message for us here today. I wonder if you'd search your own heart and ask the Lord, God, how do you want me to live? How do I live amidst this chaos in a way that's most helpful to your kingdom? How do I live today? How do I live in my marriage? What kind of parent do I need to be? How do I do this, God? Show me. Silence my mouth when it is to be silent and open my mouth to speak and fill my heart with boldness so that I might speak your word and help me to know the difference. 
should be our prayer today. There's also a message here today for those who are the Demetriuses, the ones who are idolaters, the ones who are in rebellion against God. Jesus came in quiet faithfulness. He stood before Pilate and he did not utter a word. But he stood silent to receive what was coming to him for your sin and my sin. And know this, that he came and humbled himself even to the point of death, even the death of a cross. and gave his life for you. But when Jesus comes back, he is not coming back silent. He's coming back with the blast of a trumpet. And He will put every enemy under His feet. And the call of God on our lives today is to trust, to repent of our sins and to trust in Jesus and to believe upon Him for eternal life now before He comes. It's the call. Have you ever trusted in Christ? Have you ever submitted your life to Him in full surrender and faith? Believing that His cross was enough for your sin and for mine. And so in just a few moments, we're going to stand. This altar is going to be open. The hour is late, but God is speaking to your heart this morning. And you need to respond. And whatever He's called you to respond to. So would you stand with me all across the room? Lord, I pray that you'd have your way in this place. That we would be obedient to your word. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Even as Stephanie begins to play, the altar is open. You come this morning. You've been listening to the Southwide Baptist Church Podcast with Pastor Jeremy Lewis. For more information about our church, please visit www.southwidebaptist.com. We also invite you to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram by searching for Southwide BC. Thank you for listening, and may you continue to worship connect, grow, and multiply as you follow Jesus Christ.